Hi, it's Phil Kerner, the Tool and Die Guy, and this is The Journeyman. It's Friday, August 9th, 2019, and you're listening to the only broadcast in the world that's dedicated to the Cadillac of the trades. You know, when I say world, I'm not sure what they're doing in China tonight, but I've uh, scoured the web, and uh, this is it. Okay, so when I say Cadillac of the trades, if you're here listening, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. This is the trade that keeps America running and home to some of the smartest and most clever guys and gals on the planet. If this is your first time here, the purpose of this broadcast is twofold. To tell the stories of the American craftsmen and to promote the trade that we all love to a new generation. And you're going to meet a real gem tonight. Before we get started, I do have an announcement to make. Uh, After eight years and recording over 300 video lessons, uh, the Tool and Die Guy that's me. I'm ready to uh, relaunch Chapter 2. And, you know, I went through my camera, and uh, I had over 4,000 photos and videos. You think there's a few lessons there? So what we're going to do, uh, a new monthly membership site. And I'm going to uh, promise at least one new lesson per week, if not more, plus a once-a-month members-only video conference for everyone to get together and just, you know, I'll have guests on. We can ask questions. We can chat about the trade. So the website is up and running, but it's top secret because I'm just putting the finishing touches on it this weekend. So please stay tuned for that. So let's get started. Back in February of 2018, long ago, back in the, a year and a half ago, I was sitting in an AM radio station here in downtown Erie, Pennsylvania, WJET 1400 AM, Erie's flagship radio station and uh, paid for the airtime 250 an hour I paid for that show just see in case you're curious and uh, I would sit there and I had uh, working hands radio and I had modeled this after a call-in program and the biggest issue I had the program was great and, and we had a lot of good guests on but the call-ins were kind of lacking and I don't know if people were just shy because people would always run into me and say oh well, that was a really great program last night I said why didn't you call in I'm sitting there tap dancing the whole night right I wasn't sitting there tap dancing because that would be hard but uh you know I had to fill in all that time if there weren't any call-ins so when we would get a call in it was like oh my god somebody's calling in oh my god it's like a fire drill right high fives all around and you know finally answer the phone well one night I got this call from a guy named Arizona Jack I'm thinking who is Arizona Jack but I really don't care who Arizona Jack is because he called so put him on Well, you know, eventually I'd come to finally uh, see his stuff on Facebook and I could tell uh, this guy loves the trade. And I knew I had a craftsman on my hands and I knew I had a kindred spirit to interview. You know, the trickiest part of this broadcast is is, uh, not only finding the people to interview who are willing to talk, but uh, to get them scheduled around busy. uh, You know, these guys are busy, a lot of overtime, uh, uh, time zone changes and everything. I was getting a little frustrated, but uh, we finally put it together, and it was worth the wait. So, without further ado, you might think you know him from his epic Facebook posts and his great photographs, but you don't know Jack. So let's get started. So I'd like to welcome to the journeyman tonight, one of our brothers in the trade, a really fun guy I've talked to him a few times. Uh, 
his real name is Jack Penrod, but you probably know him as Arizona Jack. Jack, do we have you on the line? We sure do. All right. You know, I remember the first time you uh, called me over a year ago was when I was doing uh, Working Hands Radio. <laughs> and uh, yes, I was down at the radio station here in Erie, Pennsylvania, and I remember you saying, this is Arizona Jack. Well, I didn't know who you were yet. I didn't realize uh-huh. you, were the, you were the man on social media those days, right? So, uh-huh. so I see your posts. We've chatted a few times. I know... Uh, you love this trade as much as I do, and it looks like you're still having a, an absolute blast doing it. You really love your job. So uh, my job tonight is to uh, get some information out of you that the, some people who follow you, um, or maybe who don't even, uh, know a little bit more about you. So uh, tell us about your, uh, where, what's your hometown, Jack? Where are you from? Detroit, Michigan. And Motor City. Motor City. Now, we're about the same age. So you were growing up uh, back in the heyday, Motown in the 60s. Yeah, 60s and 70s. Bob Seger, Ted Nugent, Motown. <laughs> Ted Nugent. Um, let's go. <laughs> so so um, how soon did you get into trade? Did you go to a tech school? How did that get all started? Well, in high school, I was in 10th grade. And I had no idea what I was going to do. I was getting scared. I needed a career because I was going to graduate in two years. And I did good in school. I was always a good student uh, when I showed up. My favorite classes were history and math. And as I was signing up for classes that year, I saw this shop class, metal shop. And it was an elective. And so I thought, okay, I'll try it. You know, my grandpa was a machinist. and it, within three, four months of metal shop class, I fell in love with the trade, and I knew what I was going to do forever. Well, wait, wait, when wait, I cut my first... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, that would be about 1977. Right. Okay. And uh, they picked two students from my shop class, metal shop, every year to uh, go work in a machine shop. And I was picked. I was one of the two. And I was a broom pusher, chip boy, machine polisher uh, for two years until I turned 18, which at the time, uh, I was not allowed to run a machine until I was 18. And uh, the day after I turned 18, they put me on an engine lathe, and I've never stopped. I've never done anything since then, and I still love it today. I look forward to going to work every day. Let me ask you this now. Um, the two years you spent from age 16 to 18, just being exposed to the, to the shop environment, you know, you back then it probably wasn't some days you were probably grumbling about it because you, know, you, you wanted to run a machine, of course, but you couldn't. But didn't that help you get right. acclimated to manufacturing and how it works and how to behave in a shop, things like that? Yeah, I, I, uh, I saw how everybody interacted with each other and I was allowed to run the machines at school and my two machines that I ran the most in the shop class was a surface grinder and an engine lathe. And I ended up uh, making all the other students tool bits on the surface grinder. I learned to set up and grind compound angles and all that. We did not have a comparator back then. So we just used, uh, you know, a divider, a radius gauges, a protractor, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I would go to work and I would watch those guys. I worshipped those tool makers and journeymen. And, uh, man, I would clean their machine. 
And when I finally was allowed to run a machine at work, I had already had, uh, you know, school experience. <clears throat> and the first machine I uh, was put on in a machine shop was a surface grinder, and I fell in love with it. And to this day, grinding is still my strongest area and my favorite thing to do. Okay, a couple que- a couple questions about that. First of all, uh, can you tell us, is that shop that you worked at, is that still in business? What was the name of it? It was called Spartan Carbide, and it is still in business, and they have grown. They're a big national, nation, worldwide, whatever. They're, they're a big custom form ground insert company. They don't, they don't just stamp out preforms or nothing. These are custom ground form inserts, and, and that's why I really became good on the service grinder. And so you were actually uh, grinding carbide? Yes, diamond wheels. And I also learned how to dress diamond wheels, form dress diamond wheels. Unlike dirt wheels, when you're grinding steel, you don't just get the old uh, clear view out and the last word and dress your angles and that. It was all, it was a, there's a whole lot to form grinding carbide because the wheels you're dressing are diamond. And putting angles and radius and all that radii on a diamond wheel. We used to put female radius a radius and a diamond wheel with using music wire. And uh, one guy would guide the wire and the other guy would be on the button with the on off switch. We didn't have variable speed spindles then because you need your grinding wheel to turn real slow. But it was, uh, it was a fascinating experience. And I, I still grind and grind form tools for shops today that I've, I've done it all my career. Now, you, uh, how long did you stay at, uh, at was it Spartan? Spartan, you called it Spartan Carbide? Correct. Uh, how long I you? bounced. Be- I was, I spent about a total of eight years <clears throat> grinding carbide and uh, similar items. But I bounced between the shops in Detroit because back then it was the best way to get a raise and it was the best way to learn a different way to do it. So for eight years, I probably had about four different jobs. I would work a year or two here, a year or two there. And if anybody was experienced in grinding carbide, you could get a job. You could just go get a job, quit Friday, you'd start work Monday. Uh, and I went around the shops. And by the end, by the time I left the carbide grinding in- industry, I was considered a top man. And uh, I was getting top dollar. And when I after I became really good at what I did, and also I ran bridge ports and lathes, and I ran a Blanchard grinder. I, I did a little jig grinding, but not much. And uh, I I left Detroit. I just had a wild seed. I was a young man with the trade and making some money, and I moved to Hollywood, California. Hollywood. I, I just got back from California. That's a beautiful. Yeah, place, I know. Beautiful place to visit. Let's just put it that way. There you go. There you go. Yeah. So did you end up doing a formal apprenticeship or not? No, I did not do a formal apprenticeship, but I my companies that I worked at, this one company for three years, they did pay my tuition, and I went to a uh, community college, Macomb County Community College, and I believe the program was sponsored by the Henry Ford Trade School, and I got all of the certificates and all that stuff. I was just curious. But, uh, so, so yeah. Hollywood, California really isn't known as a hotbed of tool making. So what the heck are you doing out there? 
I had a couple of friends out there who had left a few years prior and they were both machinists and they worked for this company called cinema products and they were a machine shop for the movie camera company Panavision. And they got me in, they had me a job ready. I, when I got to Hollywood, I already had a job waiting for me. And that's when I really started uh, getting into more milling. And that's where I first learned CNC's was at that company. And I stayed there and uh, I, I ran a CNC for a couple of years and I learned to run a, at the time it was a Fidel. It was a new American made machine. It was built locally in California. And uh, I sort of made the switch. About 1985, we're talking somewhere in that range? Oh, I think it was 1987 or something okay. like that. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah, that's when the Fidals were just starting to come out around here. So uh, right. I, I have to ask, what part of L.A. did you end up living in? I lived in Hollywood. I could walk two blocks to my house and be on Hollywood Boulevard. <laughs> I was right there in the thick of it. I I had the black ponytail dyed hair and the tattoos. And don't forget back then, Guns N' Roses was a bar band. Mm. And uh, I was, it was the scene at the time. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, it was, I, w I was one of the musician guys. I also play guitar. But I was working in a machine shop all day and partying on the Sunset Strip all night. <laughs> it was really good because I was making real good money at the time because Hollywood has always been expensive. But uh, I just love it. And my parents always told me if you learn a trade, you can go anywhere you want and land a job. And that proved out to be true because at first I thought they were crazy. But they, as you know, as always, mom and dad are right. Well, you know, my saying is almost exactly what you just said. Anybody that can work with their hands <laughs> will always have a job. If you can, are you, if you yeah. can work with your hands and build things, and you're good at it, yep. you'll you'll always find work. You know. Um, so how long? Yeah. Did you how long did you stay in Hollywood? I stayed in Hollywood. I think about four years. And my uh, young craziness, I got into some trouble, not legally at all, but I was drinking and partying and. I decided that I had had enough of that. So I moved back to Detroit for a year with my mom. And uh, the last company I worked at in Detroit, which was Carroll Carbide, they they uh, hired me over the phone when I got back to Detroit. Because I called my boss and he said, can you come in Monday and bring your tools? And I said, yeah. So I went back to that. And then after having been out west for a while, and uh, when it started to get snow and rain and wintry in Detroit, I said, I got to get out of here. I'm heading west again. So I got my car and I drove to Phoenix, Arizona, because what I actually did, this is really weird. I threw a dart at a map <laughs> and I it hit, it hit Phoenix because I was wide open. I don't care if I go to Portland, Oregon or Sacramento or whatever. I'm just not going back to Los Angeles, but I Phoenix. So I drove to Phoenix and I got here on a on a, as a matter of fact, I turned 31 years old on my way to Phoenix. My birthday was on the way here. And when I got to Phoenix, I, uh, all I knew at the time was the Fidel. So I called, I looked it up back then in the phone book and all that. And I found the Fidel distributor in Phoenix area, called them, went there, met a few guys, gave them my resume, and I had a job my first Monday in Arizona. 
And that was how long ago? What, what year was that? That would have been 1992. And you've never looked back. You've been there ever since. Been here ever since. Phoenix is my new home. So that's where you became Arizona Jack because you would have been Hollywood Jack. <laughs> yeah, no, that was before the internet. I got the nickname Arizona Jack from hot sauce and beef jerky. Uh, I That's one of my side hobbies, and there was this internet forum, and you had to pick a name, and I just couldn't come up with anything, so I called myself Arizona Jack, and my beef jerky and hot sauce company exploded and just came huge. And uh, working in the shop during the day and making beef jerky and hot sauce at night. And I've been Arizona Jack ever since. You still doing that? No, no, I haven't done that for about 10 years. But I still have friends that refer to me as AJ. That's sort of a nickname. So let me get this straight. I'm, I'm not, I want to make sure I'm following this. You were actually, besides being a toolmaker, you had your own hot sauce company and beef jerky. Correct. And beef jerky. Penrod Pepper Products. And we were the number one power seller on eBay of uh, spicy beef jerky. We we what made you get out of it? Too much work, too little profit. Okay. I was making. Uh, I was at the point of possibly quitting my day job, and my wife and I taking our collective savings and starting a company, and going full time. We had the demand, but. I was a little skittish on that. I had a family and kids to take care of and all that. And that steady aerospace paycheck was just too reliable. And I chickened out. I do not regret it because I still love what I do. So uh, if, I, if you don't mind me asking here, so uh, yeah. I, when we last left off, you had transferred from Detroit back now to your, you're in Arizona after throwing a dart at the map. When did you get married? I uh, got married 1995. I met a woman. I went to see a uh, blues open mic night, and there was some gal playing Eric Clapton on her guitar, and I was with a couple drinking buddies from the shop, and I fell in love with her, and I told my friends, I said, I'm going to marry that gal, and they laughed, and we all had a good time, and uh, I ended up marrying her, and I'm still married to her today. You know, I, if I stop now, I've already learned a lot, but <laughs> we're going to, we're going to keep going here. Yeah. So, um, no, that's great. So, so, um, do you, as you're looking through the, your experience in the trade and all the things you've done, um, you, first of all, I want to say you and I were both very lucky guys because when we came up in the trade in the late seventies and eighties, we had to learn the old ways and then the CNC yeah. to come in. And we were young enough where we had to learn the CNCs or we weren't going to survive very long. So, you know, when I started running a CNC machine after doing manual work and rotary heads and rotary tables and all, you know, all that crazy. Oh, yeah. It was like cheating, right? I mean, it was, you got to be kidding me. Uh, I mean, I'm not eating chips. I close the doors. I flood the thing with coolant. It was, it, the thing would work while I was doing something else. I mean, so many advantages. But, you know, that thing we had learning uh, the trade from the masters and the manual way uh, yeah. Then transferring it to CNC, that was absolutely invaluable. You know, it really. I was talking with my boss the other day because we're really hurting for manual tool makers. I'm running the tool room in my current shop, and uh, 
I found a guy, we hired him, but there aren't any, you know, they're not replacing the manual guys. You're right. When I was young, everybody was a manual guy. They were a dime a dozen. And when CNC's became affordable and more smaller shops were buying CNC mills and lathes, generally they would take, you know, one of their top tool makers or top machinists and bring them over to the CNC and teach them. That's what happened to me at Cinema Products. They took me off the Bridgeport and put me on the brand new Fidel. And uh, then the rock stars became the CNC guys. The CNC guys were the rock stars and uh, the top dollar guys. And throughout, it's changed over the years. Now, everybody's a CNC operator. Um, there are a few really good top-notch setup guys is all it takes. And the rest of the shop could be operators. And the manual guys are the rock stars because there aren't that many left. And um, what what I'm what I'm really pushing at work is a, is an in-house training program where I can go out and pick uh, the the best two CNC kids in the shop and bring them into the manual room. And because I'm going to retire one day in ten years, or I'll probably die at work. Who knows? But uh, who's going to replace me when I'm gone? We don't have anybody, and I think every shop is in that situation. Well, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I am such an advocate for training. And because of the work I do online, a lot, right. of, stuff, a lot of stuff comes across my, my email. Or my, I like to say across my desk and uh, the community colleges and shops that started their own training programs. And, you know, I, I try to reach out to these guys. It's really hard to get it because I want to interview them too because so many people, it's ironic because of what you just said, have given up, on, and I don't want to throw any trade schools under the bus, but I know the ones we have here in Erie, Pennsylvania are not cheap, all right? And these kids right. these kids spend twenty or $30,000 for <laughs> basics, and um, you know, some are better than others, but, you know, the reluctance on a lot of the guys here in Erie, they, they forget. You know, when, when I had my apprenticeship program, when I had Kerner Tool and Dye Company, you know, I trained these guys, and some stayed, some left. But then I'd hire other guys that had apprentices from other places. You know, it was just, it was just like the, the rule of the jungle. Apprentices leave. It's, it's a shame you put all this time and effort in training them. And uh, some stay, some don't. And some shops seem right. really paranoid that I'm going to train this kid for two or four years, and he's going to leave me for a nickel. And I get that. And I guess the yeah. um but... That's just, you know, if, if you treat them well, they're not going to leave, you know? Um, and, and, um, there you go. You know? There you go. I shouldn't say that. I treated my guys very well. It, it, but, you know, after three or four years after they finished their apprenticeship, they were getting itchy, and it's the 90s. Things are booming, and, you know, they just decided that they wanted to try something else. And uh, But they're great guys. You know, they, we're still friends and everything. But uh, uh, that's, the, that's one of the drawbacks I see people having to – doing their own training program and to me i mean i would love to do a, like a six-month pre-apprentice training just expose these kids or trainees to the basics of a machine shop how loud it's right to be in a machine shop what's a saw do what's a you know what's a, what are the functions even just right down to the shipping of the parts because I, a lot of guys walk in my i don't know how big your place is you know, the place i work at it's ninety thousand square feet and I'm it's, half that. Okay, so it's intimidating, you know? 
And yeah. uh, I, I think they could be prepared a little bit more. Uh, you know, they go to this little school and, and they can you know, program a little bit, but you know, it's going to change when they go to their real job because unless you come in like uh, Arizona Jack, you're going to start off as a button pusher. Well, you know what? You put a lot of money into your education to start off as a button pusher somewhere for another year. Right. You know, and that's, that, I, I agree with you. That's, uh, we're on the same page there. Uh, uh, getting, you know, yeah. uh, a lot of these CNC guys, even some of the better ones are good at the CNC, but they've never cut a chip. They don't know what a drill feels like breaking through a hole or they can't trig out a bolt circle. You know, Phil, back in the day when you and I started on our CNCs, a lot of times we would sit at the machine with a calculator, do our trig and type it in line by line. Yeah, we didn't have G2. AutoCAD. We didn't have AutoCAD. Right. The, you know? There was no AutoCAD. We, pro, we wrote our programs old school math with a pencil and paper and keyed it in, MDI'd it into the controller and to see some of these top tier CNC guys in our shop, not necessarily where I work, but in the industry wide, some of these guys can't can't even trigger out a bolt circle, and I just scratch my head, and I I think that we need better training, but it's become so so easy now to import a model to a, a master cam and spit out code, and and it's. Nine times out of ten, it's going to work. You're going to have some basic edits and all that. But the training that you get from the ground up just isn't there anymore. And what we're creating is a generation of people that are soon going to be replaced by robots. And the old manual guys are going to be making those robots. Or, you know, the, the manual guys are not going to be replaced by robots. Some, you always need a bridge port in an engine lathe in a shop, you know, as support equipment. A, uh, B, you always need somebody that knows how to put something together when it's been machined right. and it's not perfect. You know, yeah. that's the tool maker comes in and it makes those little adjustments. And that takes you right. to learn, to, to be able to say, okay, I need to grind half a thousandths off this surface and be able to go over the grinder, jump in the lathe, maybe even in the EDM machine. Who knows? But, um, yeah. Uh, you know, I love CNCs. I run a CNC. I'm not anti-CNC at all. But again, me neither. Uh, I love it. I know, but the the ability to troubleshoot comes from the experience of working on manual machines and and and, and assembling things. You know, so that that's yeah. The the troubleshooting. The, I think the best thing that ever happened to my career is when I landed a job in a mold shop as a mold maker's helper, and I eventually started building molds and timing slides and uh, grinding shutoffs and like you're saying, a half thou here, a couple tenths there and all that kind of stuff. You really learn how to troubleshoot. How many of the machinists today have ever blew a shutoff before? Some of the guys don't even know what that is. I am the only person out of a shop of 175 people that has a tube of blooming. In my, in my I have mine also. I have my spotters blue, and w we had it. We had to actually use it once a couple months ago when we had a problem with a 3D uh, geometry part fitting into a 3D geometry fixture. So we blew it up, tapped it with my soft Lixie, 
And we found the high spots in the fixture where the part wasn't sitting right. And people were looking at me like, oh, my gosh, how did you do that? And I said, you know what? Everybody used to know how to do that. Well, don't forget, too, the high spot bluing can be used to do many evil things around the tool room also. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah, the blue handles and all that stuff. I know all the tricks. Uh, My favorite. I, I, I think my favorite was the bluing on the bridge of your safety glasses. Oh, that's that's a good one. Yeah, so the yeah. guy takes his safety oh. glasses off. He looks like a raccoon. That was that was a brutal one. You had to do something really. Yeah, good. that that that's a good one. There's there's been quite a few good ones, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the old Dykem high spot blue. So, um, but no, I I go ahead. Go ahead. How big's your tool room? How big's the place the tool room you you manage now? I've seen pictures. Well, I'm not a manager. I'm just the leader, lead man, the go-to guy, whatever you call it. It's not really an official title. Okay. But my gosh, I have three uh, knee mills. I have an engine lathe, a hardened uh, HLV tool room lathe, a more jig grinder, a sun and hone, two surface grinders, a monoset, and a bandsaw, a, a horizontal bandsaw. And for now, there's three of us. We have two full-time and one guy out the floor, one of the young kids I'm trying to teach. But so there's three of us in the tool room. And where I work, we're over 100, probably 110 or 20, I don't know. Uh, We're in a 48,000-square-foot building. The name of my company I work at now is Genuine Machine Products. Uh, you can view the website, genuinemachine.com. There's a lot of pictures, and it tells you a lot about where I work. But what my tool room does is we build the fixtures and any support equipment. We we do hardened and ground gauges uh, for the inspection department and for the, the operators to use. Our job in the tool room is to keep those 40 CNC machines running. And we run three shifts, so you never know what's going to happen on nights or weekends. I've worked seven days many times uh, on fixturing and stuff like that, getting a, getting a hot job up and going. But uh, I I wish I would have found this place sooner because I this is my favorite job I've ever had. They take good, real good care of me, and everybody who works here likes their job. And it's a happy, good place to work. Of course, there's stressful, this and that, and problems everywhere. But overall, over my 40 years in this career, I really like it. This will be the place I'll retire from if they let me. That's that's a. I I love hearing that. That's a really good thing. You know, you and I I do a lot of the same things now. Um, I don't have quite the access. Uh, We don't have a a jig grinder, but I'm basically I'm basically in charge of of supporting. the CNCs and occasionally right. occasionally they give me little one-offs to run two of this five of this you know after sure, five, sure. after five of anything I'm ready to slip my wrist though I'm ready for somebody else to do it we do a lot of secondary operations it's, it's sometimes it's more expeditious to throw it in the manual room and just let us knock it out than it is the spindle dollar per hour on a CNC machine or four or five axis machine costs a whole lot more than the spindle dollar per hour on a bridge port, you know? Exactly. Um, I think we don't like it, but we know it's part of the job. We do it. We prefer to build tools and gauges. And my favorite thing is 
I love jig grinding. The closer the tolerance, the tighter, the craziest. I love that stuff. And so I, I'm the jig grinder in the shop, and I do a lot of rework there because sometimes things will <clears throat> require rework or fixing or maybe moving a whole position two tenths this way to, to you know, meet the true position requirement. But uh, we we do mainly fixture building. We do some rework and some secondary ops, but we're getting into now this new thing that's brand new that you and I both are really going to learn a lot if we stick around enough is 3D printing. Okay. Some of these 3D printed parts we're bringing, and where I work, the 3D printed parts are in Canal. Uh, I did a job two days ago. I, I don't know what it was. It was a customer proprietary product. Uh, formula and I nicknamed it kryptonite and then I later on I thought about it so now I call it cryptoloid and uh, I, I had to learn how to cut this stuff surface feet you know yeah. do you want to really get under it and cut a chip or can you it was amazing process to learn how to cut that metal and if I hadn't known and cut a lot of super alloys over my career Stellite, Haynes, Hastelloy, Inconel, all that. I would have never been able to do this. I would have said, no, you can't do this in a machine. This this has to be either wire EDM'd or something. But uh, the new 3D printed parts, they're, they're just crazy technology. Uh, if, you, if you think of a mold base and all the plumbing you have to do to get the water lines in and pipe right. plugs here and right. long holes there, well, they print that, and there, there's no need for that. They can print a hole and make a left turn, and then a, then a circle, and then a right turn, right there on the printer. No, no need to drill that hole. They print around it, almost as if there was a core. You know, so, so but, you, don't, uh, you don't have to do the cross holes. None of that sort of stuff. It's yeah. already in the metal. But uh, we have we're the now we are the new. Uh, our, I, I won't name our customer. I, I don't know the rules. I do not want to get in trouble I, I, with my I, employer. I appreciate that. But we're the we're the go-to shop for one of the largest aerospace companies in Phoenix. And what I'm doing is building the fixtures. And so far, we're all manual work on our 3D printed parts. And I'm the go-to guy on that. And... It's just becoming buried with this new technology. When I started this trade, Phil, you had to change pulleys on a bridge port, right? To yeah. change speeds, and there were then then came the variable speed heads, and then and then there was readouts, and then there was uh, CNC. And I thought I've seen it all: four, five axis CNC, nine axis lathes. Well, what I'm seeing now is 3D printing, and it's. It's it's fascinating, and every day is new. Every day is a challenge, and I just love being part of it because I love what I do. And it's almost like getting paid to go to the playground because I get money to go play with machines. You know, I don't think uh, – I, I hope the people that are listening to this interview do realize, you know, one of the things I always like to say is uh, there's a certain satisfaction uh, you get from building things with your hands. And if you've done yes. it for a while and you're good at it, yes, can it get frustrating, you know, but boy, it is cool at the end of the day to see a 
beautiful looking part on your surface plate and say that was that was a hell of a good day look at that part i did that start to finish. Yeah. and you know i mean the satisfaction you know it's funny uh, a lot of the guys that are members at the tool and die guy uh site the, half my members are retired doctors and lawyers <clears throat> yeah and their father why, why are they on the tool and die guy page because their fathers were machinists and tool and die makers, put them through college. Oh, the fathers die, and they end up with the tools. Much later, oh, there we go. And much later in life, they, you know, they say, you know, I want to learn some of this stuff. And uh, yeah, uh, yeah, and and I think you know, and I, God, I know I could get in trouble for saying this, but I know so many. See, when I come home from work, Jack, um, yeah, I'll hang out with my wife. Uh, I'll do I'll do the yard work and stuff like that. But I don't build a lot of stuff at home. Um, I build stuff right. all day. I don't need to do it when I come home. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with right. it. Do. But a lot of guys who work in maybe in the office or, you know, in insurance or the bank, they come home and they want to build stuff. You know, they redo the kitchen or they re you know, build a deck on the backyard. I have no. Now you're making sense. I love it. I, I have no interest. I've done, I've done that all day. You know, I mean. The, right. Same I, here. I, I'll, uh, I'll enjoy, you know, household maintenance chores, all that stuff I take care of. But. Um, after, but I, I don't do too much building around the house cause I've done all day, but back to what I'm saying, and I don't want to get in trouble with this, but men, men, and I know there's some gals out there, but, uh, I think a lot of men, the personal satisfaction of building <laughs> and that's what our, that's what our trade is every day, you know? Um, it yeah. is. so, um, as we finish up here and I know I want to ask you just a few questions. Um, I got through. Sure good information from you tonight but let's have some fun questions here so what uh what's when you're not working like a madman what are your hobbies what do you enjoy doing i uh gosh i use i've had so many different hobbies i'm the type of guy i'll, I'll get a hobby go head first into it and then a year or two later i'll get bored that's sort of what happened to me with hot sauce i was into poker i would play uh Holding poker for the longest time, I I got good enough. I was winning tournaments. I won a first place in Texas and Vegas, uh, and I grew tired of that. And I'm always looking for a new hobby. But right now, I'm just peddling peddling water. I I don't have a hobby, and I really need one because I, I, I think, think I think I know what your hobby is. It's posting. My on hobby is machine shop, Phil. It's pay, it's posting on Facebook. <laughs> oh, I I just go on there every day, and I just because I have a lot of friends and family. But I'm getting into it was it's this new social media thing is awesome because in the old days we would just talk, get off of work, maybe go to the bowling alley or the bar or something, and hang out with guys and a couple guys from the other shops, and you had a very small circle of friends with like interests in machine shop and tool and die, et cetera. Now I can turn on my internet and I can have a hundred people who love what I love. And it's just, I just really like it because I, I love machine shop. I eat, sleep and breathe machine shop. And I go on to the social media and I've made friends nationwide, a few worldwide and we all, it's just like hanging out with your buddies. The only thing is it's on a computer screen. Right. But uh, I do need to get out more. I do need to get out of my house. I love camping and I love 
going out to the shooting range and stuff like that. But in Arizona right now, when it's 115, you can't really go camping. So uh, if you like to go, I, I also enjoy, like, uh, I've not, never been a big hunter, but I do enjoy to, uh, going out to the, to the uh, range once in a while. What kind of guns do you have? Right. You have some good guns? I've got some nice guns, yeah. Uh, and Arizona is a very gun-friendly state. I don't hunt either. I've I've never hunted, but I just love shooting a target. And if you're a machinist, damn it, you want to hit the bullseye every time. And uh, I've got the, you know, the, the I, I hate to use the term. In fact, I won't. I have a semi-automatic black gun, and I've got a couple real decent scoped uh i've got a nice 22 and i have some handguns but uh i'm responsible legal gun owner and i i just that's one of my hobbies and i i treat them responsibly i take my concealed carry course every year just to keep up with the current laws and all that but uh that's one of my hobbies you know why because it's like a machine part it's when i I was going to say the exact same thing. A good rifle in your hands is such a precision piece of equipment. Just the weight it, of it. It's a, I appreciate the precision. Oh. If you look at a jeweled bolt on a beautiful gun, it's just like, oh, boy. You know, that's like machine shop porn. <laughs> it's, uh, it's beautiful. But, yeah, that's the kind of stuff I do. I also love fishing. I do fish. And I, I only keep what I eat, but uh, unfortunately in Arizona, we only get half a year to do all that stuff because the other half a year, it's too damn hot. So a couple of things to finish up with. Uh, I, I, learned, yeah. I learned a lot tonight. Is there anything else we'd be surprised to know about you? No, no. There's it covers it. <laughs> that's about it. This is a tool and die program. If this were a uh, wild, crazy musician in the '80s program, we'd go in a whole different direction. Did but you ever, you, we'll save that for next time. You played. You played guitar. Did you ever play in a band? Oh gosh, yeah. I've been in lots of bands. Uh, I I play guitar. I don't sing unless I have to. <clears throat> but I. Uh, it's always been one of my hobbies. And at one point, I had about 21 or 22 guitars in my collection. I love Stevie Ray Vaughan. I love blues. I love the old, because when I was a kid growing up, my parents were playing Chuck Berry and Elvis on the stereo all the time. I don't like all the new stuff. I, I'm an old timer, and I like the old stuff, Led Zeppelin and all that. And I, I'm also good at guitar. I'm just that kind of guy that if I practice enough at something i'm so determined i won't stop until i can do it to my own satisfaction you play anymore but, uh, you still play i haven't touched i have not touched a guitar in 10 years really yeah and i used to play play guitar and right after i got home from work till i went to bed and then all day on the weekends and i just moved on but it's always been something that i could always pick up and do again I know a lot of musicians that just use it to relax. You know, they come home and they just strum the guitar for an hour or so and just, you know, sure. chill out, you know? And when, I was, and when I was a young guy, it was a good way to get girls, too. No way. Yeah, being in a band and be the guitar player, sure. With your, with your, <laughs> with, with your ponytail? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tattoos, all that stuff. Amazing. So we'll end with this. What's the best advice you ever got? Do you have anything? 
the best advice I have ever got was you don't know everything and you're not irreplaceable and you can even learn from the trainees and uh, keep your eyes open and your ears shut. I mean, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. You learn more. And that's not like a, a rude, crude rule. It's just if you listen and pay attention to the old timers, you're going to learn. And the old timers will teach you if they think you're willing to learn. But if you're a young know-it-all kid, you're not going to learn much. That's the way I was brought up. And last thing is, um, what's the best advice you can give anybody tonight that's uh, thinking about getting in the trade or a new person in the trade? Same thing? Same thing. Just be the best employee you can be. Be dependable and uh, learn as much as you can and do the best you can. And you're going to have times. I had the kid out on the floor who's really struggling to a job right now. And I told him, don't get disheartened. You made all the same mistakes that I've made. It's a phase of your career. Don't think this isn't for me because you're going to be good if you stick with it. Uh, this are the day of our job. The, the type of job we have is you're going to have those frustrations. Just don't give up. And if you don't think you like it, get out now because you will reach a point in the machine shop trade where you're making enough money you can't afford to quit because you'll go into another trade and trade it, take a huge pay cut. And uh, I call that the trap, the machinist trap. I've seen it over and over through my career where people can't, they hate their job, but they're making X amount of dollars and they can't quit because they're going to make half of that starting over somewhere else. If you, within your first year, don't think this trade is for you, it probably isn't. You know, uh, sad, but true. Uh, you know, I agree with you and, uh, you know, you and I were both blessed to fall in love with what we did at a young age. Yeah. You know, they uh, say, if you love your job, you'll never work a day in your life. Yep. I, I'm that lucky guy. That's a beautiful. I'm that lucky guy. I love my job. So what we're going to do here is officially I'm going to let you go and thank you for interviewing me or inter being interviewed by me. Uh, but what I want to do is I'm going to keep you on the line for a few more minutes and we're going to go off the record. And I, I might uh, edit it. I might post it. But uh, for now, uh, uh, this is our first installment. Uh, I want to say thank you so much for sharing your story with me on the journeyman tonight, uh, Arizona Jack. Much appreciated. And uh, Please uh, stay on the line here, and uh, we'll continue yeah. on for a few more minutes. Okay, so thank you. Well, I want to th thank you, Phil, also for being the guy to do this. Uh, I think you have the same passion for this trade that I have, and I hope that other machinists and aspiring machinists listen to you. Uh, you're, you've taken this to a new level now that – this I've, who ever knew there would be a machine shop talk radio program, but you're the guy who did it. And I just think it's fantastic. And I feel very humbled and honored that you would uh, consider me for actually to be a guest on your program. Well, that's, uh, I would say the exact same thing to you. I'm humbled and honored that someone like you would be on this program. So, uh, we'll continue on here uh, with Arizona Jack. Uh, we're going to go overtime here and, uh, Maybe we'll post it uh, in the next uh, couple of weeks. We'll see where we go. Well, now, uh, that was fun. 
And uh, just so you know, we talked about a lot of things during our uh, short overtime session, as you can imagine. Uh, two guys that are about the same age, pretty much the same background. And uh, we're going to, you know, I, I think this stuff might not be meant for the general population of the internet. So I'm going to take that last 10 or 15 minutes and I'll probably edit that a little bit. And uh, we'll throw that up on the membership site, which is uh, soon to be uh, announced. Okay. So that's it from here. If you have a great story to tell about your time in the trade or know somebody who does, we need to hear from you. It's a really simple process. Nobody's going to see you, okay? It's just a phone call. Uh, just contact me, and we'll set up a time. We do everything over the phone, and everybody loves these interviews, which is really great, which is really awesome, but we need more people uh, to interview, so you need to contact me. If you're in a position in a uh, position to give back and become a sponsor of this broadcast, the only one like it in the world dedicated to this trade, um, we'd love to hear from you. All of my contact info, all of it, it's available. Just go to thetoolanddieguy.com, contact me. If you can't find it there, just Google me. Um, I'm pretty much out there on the web, okay? So that's it from here, uh, Erie, Pennsylvania. And uh, just remember, a man who works with his hands is a laborer. A man who works with his hands and his brain is a craftsman. But a man who works with his hands and his brain and his heart is an artist. We'll see you on the next broadcast.